The Steve Lobby Agency presents The Christian Publishing Show, a podcast for writers who want to advance Christ's kingdom using the written word. Here's your host, Thomas Umstadt Jr. Have you ever wondered where Christian publishing came from? I sure have. I know that in the olden days, there were just publishers and they were just booksellers. But then Christian publishers started to emerge in Christian bookstores started to emerge. Why did that happen? What caused it? Well, to find out, we have a very special guest who's been working in the publishing industry for 65 years. He's the author of God Moments in My Publishing Life, which we'll have a link to in the show notes. And this book tells his story of 20 of 65 years in the Christian publishing industry at all levels. He's written articles, Sunday school curriculum, books. He's managed a bookstore, served in an, as an editorial director, uh, three different publishers, and of course, he does what everyone does at one point. He served as a literary agent. Les Doby, welcome to the Christian Publishing Show. Thank you very much. So how did you get started in your publishing career? I started uh, when I uh, signed on for seven lessons in the beginning Christian writer while I was lying flat on my back in a hospital in northern British Columbia. And I did the seven lessons while uh, a dispatcher in the British Columbia Forest Service. And ten years later, I was the editor of Christian Bookseller Magazine. And, and this was, what, 1950? Well, I started, when I signed on for the... Uh, course was in 1953, and uh, I became editor of Christian Bookseller magazine in uh, 1962 in the fall. I had been running the Moody Bookstore for two years by that time. So this is the, uh, I imagine, really early days uh, for Christian publishing. How many Christian publishers were there back then? Oh, five or six. <laughs> so you send five or six proposals out and then you've done it. You've reached the whole industry. Well, that that was the case for a long time, uh, unfortunately. Uh, and But literary agents really, really weren't accepted until uh, we're talking uh, 1980s uh, into the 1990s. I became an agent in 1993, and uh, it was uh, still a a difficult time uh, for agents because there were still publishers that didn't even want to deal with you as an agent. Yeah. I have a theory as to why agents became popular, and I blame it on the word processor. Because back when you had to write your book on a typewriter, the effort of writing the book was so high that really only people who are really committed would write books. And so you didn't really need agents to sort through uh, all of the manuscripts. And the hassle of sending it to a publisher was so high, publishers didn't get flooded with you know thousands and thousands of proposals like they do now. But now that you can type it on your computer or dictate it to your computer and email it to an agent or a publisher the number of proposals coming in has gone up so much that now publishers are happy to have uh, that filter. Well, and the other issue is that uh, before agents came along, uh, editors, uh, editorial departments, had to have somebody that would read all of the slush stuff coming in, all of the uh, books that, that would never be published. And... Uh, I remember when I was working at Moody Press uh, in the 1970s, uh, even in the 19, early 1960s, I was evaluating manuscripts uh, for Kenneth Taylor. And, uh, you know, we spent a lot of time as executives evaluating manuscripts. And, and all of that changed when they finally, and it started in the secular world, uh, they said, you know, we don't want to pay a secretary. We want somebody called agent 
to do the evaluation for us and just send us the good stuff. And it really shifted that power from yes. the secretary. Or you, know, you wouldn't think it was a very powerful position, but really that was the first person to filter. It shifted it to literary agents. Exactly. Now, you were talking about secular publishers, and I want to ask this question because it's a, a question that's come up on the podcast before. And that is, um, why have Christian publishers at all, right? Because there was a time when there was, you know, just publishers, right? Gutenberg was the first publisher, first uh, things he published. He published the Bible, he published indulgences, and he published uh, gossip, right, and, and news. And it was all coming off the same publishing press. At what point did it start to separate where you had Christian publishers and Christian retailers? Well, that started probably in the 1940s because back in the late uh, 1950s, uh, we already had uh, several Christian publishers, including Moody Press. Actually, Moody Press you know, goes back all the way to D.L. Moody with his Colportage Society. And in 1941, it became Moody Press. So there were, and Fleming H. Revelle existed, uh, would you believe it, under the in the time of D.L. Moody. And he was a brother-in-law to D.L. Moody. Hmm. And they reached an agreement. D.L. Moody would publish the paperbacks, the little ones that you sold for 20 cents or 15 cents. And uh, Fleming H. Revelle would get the hardback rights. And, and that didn't change until the 1930s. Uh, so uh, Christian publishing was really uh, struggling to get into the system of, of uh, bookstores and all the rest of it. You know, the bookstore, the Booksellers Association was not formed until uh, the uh, 1950s. Are you talking about the Christian Booksellers Association? Right, right. Bill Moore. And, and so, so, so if I understand correctly... Uh, Christian publishers were being excluded from traditional bookstores. Uh, and, and this is an important piece of history that I think a lot of people didn't realize. We didn't leave because we wanted to leave. We left because we were pushed out. And instead of going home, we created our own separate economic structure. And this, everyone listening, hear this because we're going through this again, right? We're getting pushed out again. Uh, of various online places, and, and the generations that have come before knew what to do. They didn't go home. They didn't give up. Uh, instead, they created their own publishers, and then they created their own bookstores. So walk me through what happened with the kind of the emergence of the Christian bookstore. Right, and right now, because the um, irreligious, let me put it that way, really don't want the Christian message to be broadly proclaimed, uh, they don't want uh, secular, or we call them general market publishers, to take on religious books. And and what did happen was uh, the uh, general market publishers started buying up Christian publishers. So today we have uh, several of our major publishers are literally owned by the general market publishers. So, for instance, Thomas Nelson is owned by HarperCollins. Uh, HarperCollins also owns Zondervan. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, we have the same uh, thing with uh, Faith, Faith Words Press uh, and, and others, uh, <clears throat> which uh, creates um, a dynamic that I uh, particularly uh, don't like, but... You have to deal with what you've got. Yeah, Faith Words is owned by Hachette uh, Book Group. Yeah. So um, we started to see in the 1950s, uh, late 1950s, Christian Booksellers Association was formed, and which is an organization I don't think exists anymore. But we saw it starting in the 60s and then growing really in the late 60s and then into the 70s, a big boom in Christian bookstores. I remember my mom telling stories of feeling like the only Christian on her college campus, and she would go to the Christian bookstore just to feel like she was around 
other Christians and like seeing other Christians at the bookstore was so encouraging. It was like this, uh, evangelical outpost, so to speak in those days. Now you ran a bookstore for a time. Uh, what was that like? Well, my first experience was in, in Winnipeg, Canada, where they had had a German language bookstore, uh, for some time for the German speaking Mennonite population in Canada. And when I joined to uh, as editor of the Mennonite Observer, I also uh, was tasked with buying the books uh, in English. And so for four years, I bought uh, English books, brought them into the bookstore, and uh, and we sold them, and we did okay. Uh, and... Uh, so when Bill Moore came and wanted to talk to Christian booksellers, I was there. And uh, that triggered an idea in my mind that maybe someday I could get uh, into the business with uh, Moody Press. And so, uh, so you started off as an editor and then you went into retail. And, uh, and did you ever get into Moody Press? I What happened, I got the bookstore was owned by Moody Bible Institute. And uh, six months after I took over as selling floor manager, <clears throat> I was handed a envelope, uh, and my manager said, uh, Kenneth Taylor would like you to evaluate this. Uh, so I took it home, and I opened it up, and it was First Timothy in a new translation. And I said to myself, whoa, whoa, who, what's going on here? And because I'd had a Greek in a Bible college, I was able to evaluate it both for English and Greek. And then I was invited to present my findings at the editorial committee. And uh, my turn came, and I made my presentation uh, and said basically it's it's readable it's it's uh, quite accurate it needs a little help here and there and i detailed that and i said by the way whose is it and and ken taylor looked down and he said it is not known and i knew it was his <laughs> and it was timothy and what became part of the living bible and that uh, caused him to bring me up to his uh, floor, seventh floor at Moody Press. And uh, he turned all evaluation of all incoming manuscripts over to me. So that was for a guy who was 32 years old. I, I was faced with this incredible task. But the Lord had some really important lessons for me in the process as well. So that's how we got into publishing. And uh, this is something I've noticed with what I call the old guard, uh, your generation and the generation that came after, is that most of the old guard had seminary degrees. In fact, many of the early literary agents had seminary degrees. The editors at the publishers had seminary degrees, and it was a very um, robust and rich um, world in terms of theological expertise. You could just hand a random 32-year-old at the bottom floor of the building a translation of First Timothy and expect for him to review it in the Greek and the Hebrew. And that was not an unexpected thing. Whereas I, I see myself as a generation where more people have like business backgrounds and marketing backgrounds. And I, I feel like um, something's lost there. <laughs> I don't bring that theological richness. You know, I studied Bible in school a little bit. I took some classes, uh, but I didn't major in it. That wasn't my focus in, in the university. And um, I think that that's, you tell me what you think, but it's one of the notice, changes that I've noticed just in my 10 years in the industry. Well, I, uh, right from the beginning, uh, set out to train writers in what I called a more uh, biblical approach, uh, which included stories rather than just uh, idea upon idea upon idea. And and uh, that helped uh, change the picture. But uh, my background, 
even though it was an unaccredited Bible college, Mennonite Bible college, it gave me an incredible biblical knowledge base. So I could write curriculum at all levels of the Sunday school, in addition to writing books. And I've written, you know, books for some of the leading people in this country as a ghostwriter, uh, and only able to do it because I could go to a theological library and they'd tell me, here's the topic, and I'd go to the library, and I knew where to find things and was able to translate them into readable copy. So you're 32, you've been brought up to the seventh floor, and they give you the slush pile. (laughs) So you're reading through the slush pile, and you're seeing some things you like, you're seeing some things that you don't like, then you have to bring it to the editorial committee, or what we'd now call the pub board. So what was that like, your first time presenting to that committee? They were all older men. And and, uh, and this is coming from was, somebody who's now 91. I just want to say yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> I walked in there, and, and they would really uh, go over the material at a level that uh, I, who had taught high school, had been editor of a weekly newspaper, a Christian weekly newspaper, and, and, and who had done a fair bit of preaching. Uh, just uh, was not happy with them trying to conform to their idea of what people were reading. And my secretary, when she she'd keep the minutes of the editorial board, she'd come out of there and and she'd be so angry she because she felt I was being badly treated by my <laughs> associates. I didn't feel that way. I, I mean, hey, for me, as a sort of a salesman on the side, uh, I didn't mind having to uh, present material and sometimes two or three times before they would get it accepted. So it's interesting because you felt that they were out of touch with what people were wanting to read. Yes. That's because, because I was in the bookstore. At the same time I was doing those evaluations, I was still running the bookstore. And I met the people, they walked in, and amazing to me, over and over, the person would come in with a question that I had just read in a book during my lunch hour. It was was God moments that, that you can't explain. Yeah. And that's really how Christian bookstores operated in that in that time. They were discipleship outposts. Somebody would come to the Christian bookstore with a theological question or a crisis of faith, and they would ask the bookshop owner, help, right? I'm, I'm dealing with this problem, and the bookshop owner would say, here, here's a book uh, to disciple you in this specific area. And it was a very powerful place of influence. And, oh, yes. Uh, and a real place of ministry uh, <laughs> and uh, really fast. And what's interesting is that a lot of that is shifted now instead of, because the Christian bookstores are gone for the most part. And when somebody has a theological question, instead of going to the Christian bookstore, they go to Google. Oh yes. They type their theological question into Google, uh, which means that blogging is a lot more important <laughs> than, um, because where people are going for answers has shifted. Well, so many, many, uh, customers who came in were were in deep emotional distress, had serious uh, theological issues that they were dealing with. Uh, they had problems with their kids, uh, and they needed help. and And we were there to help them. I had a staff of seven full time and three part time running the Moody Bookstore in 1960 to 61, 62. Now, you know, you'd say, well, that's over, overkill. It's just too many. But each of them had a specific area that they looked after. And so when somebody came in, I knew which area I could send them to, which person they could get real help from. That, that's incredible. And... um 
I wish we could bring that back. <laughs> yes. That, um, the bookstore is a place of ministry. And in some ways we have actually. And uh, because a lot of churches now have bookstores built in. And so people right. are now going to the pastor for help. And the pastor is pointing to the books in the church bookstore in that, that function that was now done outside of the local church of picking which books are on the shelves and recommending those books to people is now being done, at least in some churches, inside the local church, uh, which may be good because they can get ongoing support from that church, right? Maybe they get plugged into a small group or they get uh, into a discipleship program of some kind. Right. And the growth of the small group discipleship programs was a huge, huge factor in, in growing churches back in the 70s and 80s. I mean, we... And when we were uh, at at uh, Here's Life Publishers in the 80s and early 90s, uh, we were publishing material for a small group. And, and as a writer, I became a writer of the study guides at the end of books by people with a name that would carry the book into the market. Yeah. And um, so let's go back to your story. You uh, were there, you're 32 years old, you're presenting books to the pub board, you're trying to get the old men to sign off on these books. You know what the market wants, uh, but you're having a hard time convincing them. Uh, what happened next? Because eventually you you became the guy in charge of the pub board uh, at at least a couple different places, right? Well, what happened, I, I left in 62 to become editor of the Christian Bookseller magazine. And for four years, I visited bookstores and interacted with bookstores and interacted with publishers on the books that they were doing because we published an evaluation. We, we, we had somebody who we evaluated new books, and we would publish the short summaries in Christian Bookseller magazine. Well, then I was challenged by a friend of mine in Canada to come back and capture Canadian media for Christ. And I spent four years doing business magazines in Western Canada. But but God had another plan for me. All of a sudden, Moody called again and said, you know, would you come and be editorial director? Now, uh, I was dealing with a larger uh, committee, younger men, but they had all their history of what was selling in the market. And and they would they would fight me on book titles on book content because well this will sell and that won't sell and I'd say but if you go into the bookstore and you meet the people you'll know what is selling and not selling and and I'd fight them and God was gracious. We published some really fine missionary biographies that nobody else else was publishing. We we published theological books uh, that nobody was publishing because we were in touch. And 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 but also my friend, my associate, and I would visit seminaries and visit Bible colleges, and and talk to the professors, and we'd carry that back to the editorial committee. So, so it was a the, the 1970s was a Halkian time. It was start of the fiction books with uh, the uh, Alberta author that that wrote the first popular level novel, really popular level novel, and she started a, a movement uh, that just grew. The all of a sudden, fiction became a big thing. And there was a big move of God in those at that time too. There was the big Jesus people uh, oh, yes. revival and this the, the charismatic uh, awakening and a lot of um, churches and, and church movements were planted in that time. There was a, a big um, outpouring <laughs> of uh, it was almost like a counter revolution. You had the sexual revolution in the 1960s, and then moving into the 1970s, there was this counter revolution where young people were turning to God in droves and really very fanatical, right? It wasn't just a check-the-box belief, but a very active, a very uh, vibrant um, 
belief. I, I, I grew up hearing stories of all kinds of miracles that my parents witnessed in that time, sharing the gospel on a very secular college campus that was very hostile uh, to the gospel and uh, a very, a very interesting time to be a bookseller because you have all of this excitement from, from the youth, so to speak. Well, there was, there's several people who were excited about what was going on. Number one is the evangelists and new pastors. There were literally new denominations popping up that were ministering to these Jesus people. And, and, and secondly, they were reading not only the Living Bible, they were reading uh, Halley's Bible Handbook and, and Unger's Bible Dictionary, and our sales just started exploding uh, for reference books that, that these people wanted, these new Christians. And the th- seminaries were just booming because th- these young people were going into the seminaries. So it was an extraordinary time of, of we had had the hippies in the 60s, in the 70s, in the Christian community, we had the Jesus people. Yeah, and uh, I, I, it's really a remarkable time. And it, I know in my town, many of the vibrant churches uh, were either planted in the 70s or planted by churches that started in the 70s. <laughs> and in many ways, it was kind of the emergence of what later came to be known as evangelicals. Because it used to be you had Catholics and you had Protestants, and those are the, really the only two kind of big categories. But what you had in the 70s was this new kind of version of Protestantism that was a more active, more evangelistic, more likely to share the gospel, uh, more radical, um, which we now know as evangelicals. And evangelical is kind of become more of a political term now, but you were kind of witnessing the the birth of evangelicalism. It it traces its roots back farther, right? Moody, I think you could make the case was evangelical back in the early 1900s, but it the, the seeds didn't the the first harvest didn't happen until the 70s. Yeah, we had a lot of evangelists uh, uh, that that uh, would go out uh, and travel the country. Uh, that led up to what happened in the 70s. Uh, and and we had the birth of, uh, like, Los Angeles Bible uh, College, and, and which became Biola in time. And uh, all of this was God's mix that, that moved the people to faith in Christ and to commitment and, and into missions, I mean, missionary activity. When I was in charge of the uh, missionary column in Christian Life magazine for four years, it was an extraordinary time of missionary outreach. That's right. This is around the time, uh, this is exactly when uh, YWAM was being founded, <laughs> right? This is the, the biggest uh, missions organization, uh, one of the biggest missions organizations uh, in Protestant uh, Christianity. It was founded in 1960, but really started to find its traction uh, in the 70s around the same time, and you saw a big boom of missions. And you also saw a big boom of missionary books, right? There's a lot of famous missionary books were written around this time, and, and even into the 80s, I would say, um, some really popular missionary books. Yeah, we be, at Moody, we became the publisher for uh, the uh, one of the mission boards, and, and we did just a whole series of books. So let's talk about, you, you mentioned fiction. Um, let's talk about that, because I know a lot of people listening to this are writing fiction, and they're curious about, you know, Christian fiction, what is it? Where did it come from, <laughs> right? Because it used to be Christians would just write fiction with a secular publisher, right? Um, right. Uh, C.S. Lewis wasn't with a Christian publisher. He was just with a publisher. So why um, the shift? Were Christian books pushed out of secular publishers, or were they encouraged to diminish the Christian elements in their stories? We did not have really high-quality fiction writers back in the 40s and into the 50s. We had Sally Lee Bell, and we had Grace Livingstone Hill, but uh, and, and they were and, uh, read by a lot of people. Uh, and there were some other fiction writers, but... Um, 
I remember one of them that, you know, uh, at Moody, uh, we sold 8,000 copies of her uh, novel. We thought it it was in heaven, you know, that that we would sell that many. (laughs) And when when the Jesus Revolution happened, that particular novel went to 40,000 copies a year. And it was, it's, that's the explosion of fiction interest. But what we found at Moody Press in the, in the 1970s was that the more uh, erudite and the, 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 the more enro- uh, involved fiction just wasn't selling yet. They were looking for some easy reading because so few Christian women were attending university or or the Bible colleges. That that became something that started at the time, but but they were um, they loved to read and they would read, but they weren't ready educationally for the advanced level of fiction that we see some of the writers doing today. Well, that's just a big shift we've seen in society across the board. In the 1940s, when my grandmother went to college, uh, it was very—it was much more rare for women to go to college, and far fewer people, either men or women, went to college. And it cost her twenty-five dollars a semester <laughs> for the University of Texas. And I'm like, per class? And she's like, no, per semester. That was what a whole semester of school cost. And I just couldn't believe it because you adjust that for inflation, it's still not a lot of money. <laughs> it was like. But uh, the demand for college has gone way up. And, and so that's an interesting point that since more readers are college educated in 2021, they're expecting a different kind of book than they were expecting in 1960 when most people weren't college educated. Yeah. Well, I went to uh, University of British Columbia in 1951, and it cost me $450 the whole year. <laughs> And that was Canadian dollars too. In Canadian dollars, yeah. they were they were at that point the Canadian dollar was stronger than the American dollar. Oh wow, uh, that's right. That's happened a few times uh, in history. Yes. So so now we're in the seventies. It's this halcyon time, as you put it. Everything is booming. The demand for fiction. So a book that was selling eight thousand copies uh, in the sixties. That same book is now selling. Uh, tens of thousands of copies in the 1970s. So bring us into the 1980s. What were some of the things that started to change uh, moving into the 80s? Well, in the in the 80s, uh, I moved into book clubs. And uh, during this time, the early 80s, uh, we were, uh, the book clubs were uh, really developing. We'd, we'd sell 20,000 to 25,000 of a book uh, every month. Uh, and maybe uh, two books a month. Now, was this a subscription program where people would sign up and they would pay ahead of time and you would select the books and they would go out and you pick the book and you'd have 40,000 subscribers and so you would know we've got, we're going to move 40,000 copies of this book? Right, right. And and but of course we still had to because they had the right of refusal when the book arrived, and so we had to make sure that we gave them a good description. And I had I had writers that that wrote the copy uh, because uh, it was they were women writing the copy, not me as a male, because most of our members were women. Uh, Guidepost started a book club, and uh, there was another book club started, a Christian book club. So uh, that gave a big boost to the whole fiction field. And, and so in those early days, and I think it's still true to this day, the majority of Christian fiction readers, uh, the vast majority, are women. So when you're writing yes. Christian fiction, you're writing for women. Now, this is also true with general fiction, right? So women are more likely to read fiction than men are uh, are just across the board, but it's especially true in the Christian genres that are even more female-dominated in the readership than the, their secular counterparts. Well, the interesting thing is that uh, as far as nonfiction is concerned, women started dominating that field. Uh, 
back in the the 90s and and uh, into this century and and so if you look you'll have pastors they're the ones the men are the pastors typically not always but usually and 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 then you have somebody like uh, Beth Moore uh, just coming on the scene and Liz, uh, Lisa Turkhurst. These women are, are leaders. They've got their own following, and uh, they sell a ton of books. Yeah, so so what we've seen is a shift. So from in those early days, it was men were writing the books, men were reading the books. And then in the 70s, we see this big boom of young people, but uh, particularly women. And then what I'm hearing is in the night, starting in the 90s, uh, female written books started to do stronger and stronger as well. So now it's um, the gender makeup of the industry has really shifted uh, quite a bit in, in during your career. Right. Well, I, I represented men in fiction as well as a literary agent. But uh, uh, when Harlequin was taking on books, they took on women's books. Only later on did a couple of men, I know uh, there were a couple of men that, that made it with Harlequin. Um, but the uh, real movement uh, was with Bethany House. And, and then Ravel, uh, again, really started moving along. And then Zondervan and Thomas Nelson. Uh, really upped the ante on that. Because these were houses that were, were they mostly focused on fiction in those early days, or was it still pretty mixed? No, they, well, Thomas, I mean, Nelson uh, had the big Bible line, so their big focus was the Bible until uh, finally they they, they shifted uh, and uh, went much heavier into uh general books because they they bought up uh, word books and they bought up s- small publishers and and they brought with them books uh both fiction and nonfiction uh, it's been a it's been a changing field and it became uh at one point uh, it was uh, restricted basically to uh people who had really developed as writers. And so now we have a bunch of very small publishers. They're publishing just a few books a year, but they, they represent what I call a nascent, a developing uh, industry uh, that, that has, as far as I'm concerned, opportunity for a lot of people that didn't get opportunities before. Do you feel like the bigger publishers, especially the ones that are secular owned, are getting out of touch with the kind of today's Christian reader? Are, are they kind of like what Moody was in those early days where the old men didn't know what people were wanting in the bookstore? I, what I'm uh, feeling is that they go for already established writers and, and to make... Uh, well, to get a quick sale, let's put it that way. And and so uh, you have to uh, you have to really be a promoter today before they will take you on. So so what you're saying is they're mostly um, prioritizing authors who've already demonstrated they have a big platform. Right. You have to kind of already be famous. You have to already have that little blue check mark next to your name on the social media platforms uh, before they'll pay attention to you. Most of the time. Once in a while, you'll get a breakthrough author, uh, you know, and and that's true in in, in nonfiction. Think of uh, uh, the uh, Jesus Calling uh, book, which a small publisher uh, startup uh, had. Sales were small, and Thomas Nelson took it over, and the gift book editor saw the value and promoted it and all of a sudden it was selling like you wouldn't believe I mean when you're talking a daily devotional book that sold 10 million 10 million copies it's a shocker 
I mean, that's like chicken soup for the soul level attention there. Uh, for one, chicken soup bowl, but uh, I think chicken soup as a brand has done much better than that. Um, so take it, take, like, we're running out of time, but I want to get to the, the rest of the story. So we're in the 80s. Uh, then in the 90s, you shifted into being a literary agent. Is that right? Right. Yes. I I was, uh, Here's Life Publishers was sold to Thomas Nelson in 92. And that put me uh, uh, looking for another opportunity. And uh, I was able to get on with Scripture Press and, and as managing editor of the curriculum division and editor of the adult division, but I and and but then they sold themselves to David C. Cook, and again I was at loose ends, and and God had another opportunity. It's what I, these are my God moments where God opens one opportunity after another, and I ended up uh, working with the Evangelistic Association of New England. And so I spent five and a half years promoting uh, the ministries that were um, under the wings of uh, the Evangelistic Association of New England. And, but I was still doing um, literary agency on the side. So I stayed in touch with the industry. I went to the Christian Booksellers Association a convention every year, uh, you had to, to if you were going to be an agent, you needed to stay in touch. Mm-hmm. And and after that, now I'm I'm uh, already uh, in uh, over sixty five, and and God said, okay, I've got another little opportunity for you, and that's when I became uh, re- the journalist in residence at Gordon College. But I kept on doing my agenting on the side so that I've, I've stayed in touch until very recently. So in the 90s, we started to see uh, the decline of the Christian bookstore. Yes. And, and then in the 2000s, it started to accelerate. Uh, what, what do you think, as somebody who was there during the rise and during the fall, um, what do you think caused that fall of the Christian bookstore? It's very tough to say. Uh, I I actually wrote an article for a Christian bookseller at one point pointing out certain reasons I saw why the bookstore uh, wasn't servicing anymore at the level that they used to. But uh, what really happened was the uh, distributors arose, and the distributors... um, became the uh, major booksellers. Uh, and, and as a result, the small bookstores just died because they, their market was being taken by the distributors. By the bigger bookstores like Barnes & Noble? Well, I'm, no, not only that. We're talking uh, CBD, Christian Book Discount. Mm-hmm. Christian Book Distributors. Yeah, and before that, there was an, another agency. Uh, there were about three of them at one point that just were discounting their books, like Amazon does, and and they killed bookstore after bookstore after bookstore because they just couldn't compete at that discounted level. And I would say also Walmart. I think what really yes, killed off the yes. Christian bookstores was the Left Behind books. And let me explain what I mean by that. Um, the Left Behind books were so popular, Walmart saw them and they're like, we can sell this book. So the book that would be $20 or $25 for a hardback at the Christian bookstore, Walmart was selling for $11 or $15 at a very significant discount that they were able to negotiate. And often in the contracts, even the author gets a smaller royalty. So that because Walmart has so much buying power, uh, and I remember in the late 90s, Walmart would put end caps of Left Behind books. They would sell just zillions of those. <laughs> You'd be walking through the Barnes Noble, and there'd be a whole box of bar, uh, Left Behind books right there in Walmart. And when that top crown book, and, and this happened again with Prayer of Jabez uh, in the early 2000s, when that top crown book moves out of the Christian bookstore, that book was drawing people in to the Christian bookstore. Somebody would walk in to buy 
the Next Left Behind book at their local Lifeway or their local independent Christian bookstore. And while they were there, they'd talk with the bookstore um, person. Maybe they get some book recommendations and they buy some other books as well. And it created this um, like umbrella effect or it created a shadow kind of over the rest of the industry. And um, once that crown book, those very top books, because Walmart would only cherry pick the ones that were selling like crazy. Once those books moved to Walmart and moved there cheaper, people stopped going to the Christian bookstore. And uh, I've actually noticed the same thing in um, the board game industry. So board game um, stores, part of the reason why they're able to survive is that there are a lot of board game manufacturers that refuse to sell their uh, games at Walmart. So for years, you could not find Settlers of Catan at Walmart. And because Settlers of Catan was only available at a board game shop, it forced people to go to a board game shop and realize that there were board games other than Monopoly and Risk, right? Because you go to Walmart, it's Monopoly, it's Risk, it's Sorry, it's the same board games that there have always been at Walmart. And by refusing to work with Walmart, even though they are making less money in the short term, it kept the board game uh, shops alive. And those stores are doing great now. (laughs) Like there's board game shops, independent board game stores, all over your town. Pull up Google Maps and do a search and you'll find it. And uh, interestingly, I just saw um, Settlers of Catan at Walmart um, a couple weeks ago and I'm like, oh my goodness, it finally happened. <laughs> they finally sold out to Walmart. But at this point, I think the, the board game industry is, is mature enough. But the, um, and so I'm curious, uh, and I think both of our theories explain part of it. And obviously, there's lots of factors. But did you you were you're really onto something there because uh, Costco would have piles of uh, left behind books and and the shack you know shack sold hugely and then along came uh, uh, Jesus Calling and you could get Jesus Calling and now you go back into Costco and there's there's no Christian book there. I don't know what happened, but they're they're just not there. So, do you think that there's room for Christian retailers to start coming back? It, it, I, I think there is, but you know, Amazon is the other killer of of the small bookstore, and Amazon is booming, and and they're they've really taken over the book selling market in a way that used to be Walmart and, and others. Now, it's not just the bestsellers that are selling through. Uh, the um, uh, market that way, but also you can order any book you want from Amazon. Right. For independent authors, Amazon is the whole game because independent authors can't, not only don't get into Walmart and Costco, they don't get into Barnes & Noble either. <laughs> so they can only sell through Amazon. That's right. So here we are. It's 2021. You've seen things come and go. And and yet, Christian books are still selling like crazy. They're selling on Amazon. And and Christian book distributors, while they may have contributed to the fall of some brick-and-mortar retailers, they're still around. They're still doing very well. Lifeway is still selling online. Uh, A lot of the things have moved online, right? How someone finds their Christian book that transforms their life you know, whether they buy it in a brick-and-mortar store or online, the transformation is really what's important, right? That's why we're writing these books. Um, what do you see um, as, like, some good changes and some bad changes of kind of where we are right now? Well, I don't have a, a lot to say about that because I've just not been very close to the industry in the last three years. And, and so... Uh, I, I really don't want to make a prediction because I just am not as knowledgeable on that as I'm on history. <laughs> Fair enough. You you decided at the age of 87 it was time to retire or 88. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, I, I, so let me ask this question instead. What words of warning do you have uh, for Christian authors and Christian publishers? My biggest concern is that uh, we have... Uh, the presentation of the gospel and the basic message of the scriptures in in forms that are acceptable to the young people. Uh, we we are losing a generation of young people going on to university because they have not been prepared for it. 
and they uh, so as a result there's what books are there for them really I mean you you're talking 18 to 25 uh, and uh, I'm I'm really concerned about that now they have books for children they've got books for early teens but we we tried to get some of the you know for 18 to 2021 20, and and the bookstores would say they can't sell them we 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 just can't sell them and so the authors had to go to another level and I, uh, that's a movement that i saw happening that really distressed me yeah i mean my whole time in college was transformed by one book i read one thing you can't do in heaven and by Mark Cahill, and it mm-hmm. totally radicalized me for Jesus. <laughs> I heard Mark speak. Um, his book was independently published, uh, and he just gave copies away. You know, you could just reach out to him, and he would send you a copy for free. And if you wanted to donate, you could. It was very much kind of the, um, the Keith Green model for his book. He, I think he moved hundreds of thousands of copies of that book. Totally off the radar. It was never in any of the bookstores. And um, it was a really influential book in my life. And I, I can only imagine if... I hadn't have had a book like that um, really pointing me at Jesus. College would have been a lot of a different experience, right? Because I saw college as a time to share the gospel and to, to be a, a thermostat, not a thermometer, <laughs> and right to be an agent of change in that context. And if you're not, um, you know, for a young person not to be equipped in that way uh, with, a, with a book that resonates with them, right? Maybe the kids nowadays are still reading One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven. It still has a, a ground, uh, you know, guerrilla movement. I remember when I was in Russia doing some missionary work, I saw somebody had done a bootleg translation of that book into Russian. <laughs> um, and uh, apparently, apparently he'd gotten permission, I think, from Mark Cahill uh, to do a translation. But they did it themselves, and they were sharing the gospel. Uh, so I agree. I think that's really important. And um, it's, I think it's important to, to be uh, with young people enough so you can know what will resonate with them. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, the uh, when I was in University of British Columbia, I found C.S. Lewis through the Christ- InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and C.S. Lewis changed my perspective on life. You know, coming from the denominational background I did, I had my eyes open to the Lord at work in different ways that I hadn't expected, and and so uh, I read all of his books the next year. Uh, that were available at that time. It, it was an amazing experience to discover an author that that was exactly where you were as a young person. Right, because um, C.S. Lewis was very much in touch with the questions and challenges that people were facing. Uh, he spent two or three hours every day just doing correspondence. And he'd get a stack of letters from people around the world with theological questions and emotional questions, and, and he would dictate to his brother, who was at a typewriter, because I don't think C.S. Lewis ever learned to use a typewriter. <laughs> um, I think he wrote his books by um, pen on paper, if, if I'm not mistaken. Somebody can correct me in the comments of this episode, because uh, I know we have some C.S. Lewis scholars who listen to this uh, uh, podcast. But he would dictate to his brother, uh, responses and he would be corresponding with people. And so he would understand the challenges that they were facing in 1950. He'd understand the challenges they were facing in 1940 when he did me, did mere Christianity on the radio. Um, I think they were being bombed still. I think it was still during the blitz during world war two. Uh, I'm not sure about that, but um, I think the screw tape letters also happened during world war two in 1951. I was listening to Canadian radio, and C.S. Lewis was on there. And and that was another factor that really influenced me, because I listened to them every evening. That's right, because Mere Christianity started off as a radio address, um, I think partly to encourage the residents of uh, London who were being bombed. And, if, if I'm under- and, and so it would make sense. They have the recordings. They're still playing it. Uh, and, and Canada, uh, you know, gets gets what the UK had, you know, kind of the leftovers. <laughs> decade yeah, later, yeah. <laughs> they shove, well, all the Canadians, they'll, they had, they didn't hear this. They'll, they'll still like it. Um, but we need those voices now. And 
Um, just because something hasn't sold in the past doesn't mean it can't sell. But the principle, and, and if those of you listening, the one thing that Leslie Stoby did that is absolutely relevant today was that interacting with readers at the bookstore and listening to the questions that they're asking, the pain that they have, that has not gone out of style. Maybe doing it at the bookstore has, right? You're not, you can't stand there at the bookstore counter to hear people's questions, but you can absolutely interact with readers and start doing, host a small group, do some discipleship, <laughs> interact with the group that you're trying to reach, get to know them, understand their pains and their hopes and their longings. And in doing that, it will inform your writing so that you can write this kind of book that they need right now. Not the kind of book you needed when you were their age, but the kind of book they need right now. I have had just very recently, I had a teller writer, you're not writing for, you, you think you're writing for young people, but you're really writing for the people your age. And, and until you sit down and have a small group of young people that are you're interacting with, you are not going to reach those young people. Yep. It, and and it's true. If you're hearing it from a 91-year-old, you're hearing it from a 35-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> and I imagine if you had a young person here, you'd hear it from uh, them as well. Uh, so, uh, Leslie, thank you so much for sharing the history with us, sharing a bit of your story um, if people want to find out more about your story, we'll have a link to your book, God Moments. Tell us a little bit about your book, God Moments, and why people should check it out. Well, the God Moments are the result of uh, me uh, being alerted by the Lord. Uh, one day I was doing my morning devotions, and the, just the line came to my mind, God Moments in my publishing life. I had not been thinking about writing a book. But I went to my com computer, and I, I wrote down the titles of 21 chapters. And then I got my uh, granddaughter, who is my webmaster, to uh, put a, a chapter a week on the my website. And that stayed there for five years until the demand grew so strongly on Facebook that I get the it into actual book form that I finally decided, okay, I'll spend the money and get it done. I don't think it'll sell a million, but it'll it'll satisfy the friends who really want to know what's going on in my life. Very good. I do hope you make an audiobook version for all of us audiobook <laughs> listeners. <laughs> so uh, I will say Christian publishing really pioneered audiobooks, right? The Bible was often... Yes, they did. Uh, the only book that was available, you right, you get cassette tapes and listening to sermons on cassette tapes. Uh, so uh, audiobooks have a long. We didn't really talk about the history of audiobooks, but they also have a long uh, tradition. So I hope I hope you honor that tradition and have a, a digital version of your audiobook. And real quick, uh, do you have any final uh, tips or encouragement? What I want to communicate in my book is that God is still at work. You can depend on Him. And and God moments in my life is merely a series of illustrations from my life that that God through Jesus Christ can can enter your life and transform and and keep you going toward the final goal, which is our time in heaven together. Well said. Uh, as the uh, Bible says in Ecclesiastes one. Uh, generations come and generations go, <laughs> but uh, the earth remains forever and the Lord remains forever. And he is just as powerful now as he was in the 50s. He's just as powerful now as he was in the 70s and uh, as he was when he created the earth. <laughs> so right, right. The, uh, each generation has its own challenges and each generation is convinced that its challenges are bigger than any generation that ever came before. <laughs> right. That's not yeah. true. Uh, <laughs> nothing is new under the sun. What we're facing now uh, with you know pandemics, you think you have pandemics. Go talk to your ancestors who went through the Black Death. They had pandemics. Yes. <laughs> yes. Half the population is dead. Uh, so I'm not saying it's not bad. I'm not saying people aren't dying. I'm not saying people aren't suffering. But you're not special. This isn't unprecedented. Uh, and God got us through. Uh, each of those earlier generations and he'll get us through now as a church and, and as individuals. And um, our sponsor today actually is uh, the Christian Writers Institute, which 
uh, Les, if I'm not mistaken, that first correspondence course that you went through that started your career back in 1950, that was a Christian Writers Institute course, was it not? Yes, it was. And later on, back in 1999 or 2000, I got the opportunity to rewrite the course for the contemporary writer. Uh, and that, that was an amazing uh, invitation and experience. And that Christian Writers Institute is still around. Uh, we maintain it. You no longer get your lessons mailed to you in the mail on paper. You can now watch videos and listen to audio uh, right there on your computer or on your phone. And we have um, instructors from all over, including Les Doby. <laughs> so, uh, Les, I believe your course is there on the uh, – I'm looking it up right now as we're talking – um, your What Editors Won't Tell You is the name of the course uh, that's by you right now on there. That one, that one in the 90s and into the this century was the bestseller of the tapes that uh, <laughs> CWI had. I was astonished, but that one really n- n- nailed uh, the, the market. Well, if, uh, you, if any of you want to check it out, you can get it for uh, $6 right now is the current cost. So it's one of the things about uh, the Christian Writers Institute, Steve Lobby, uh, who runs that, really makes an effort to keep it affordable. And so while a lot of courses cost a lot of money, uh, Christian Writers Institute uh, has courses as cheap as $6. <laughs> so I'll have a link to uh, what editors won't tell you in the show notes. I'll also have a link to the book I mentioned, One Thing You Can't uh, Do in Heaven by Mark Cahill. And of course, I'll have a link to God Moments by Leslie Stoby. Leslie, thank you so much for joining us today on the Christian Publishing Show. It's been a fun time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Christian Publishing Show. For more information and to get episodes delivered to your phone automatically, visit christianpublishingshow.com.